The wounded and dying were groaning and calling for help. I'm hit, for God's sake, help me, was the cry. It was almost unbearable. Some were shell-shocked and were screaming maniacs. From the way they were screaming, you would think they were shot to pieces. Private Rush Young, 318th Infantry, 80th Division, Merzargon, September 1918. Hey folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 62, Merz-Argon, Against a Battle-Hardened Foe. We are back in the line, folks, and remember, keep holding the line. All right, let's kick things off with shout-outs to our new patrons on Patreon. Big shout-out to Eric, Bob, Douglas, and Weldon. Ongoing support of the podcast is greatly appreciated, especially in these times, and it goes towards keeping the servers running, as well as towards new research materials. As patrons, Eric, Bob, Douglas, and Weldon have access to episodes at least 24 hours, if not longer, before they are released on iTunes, as well as access to episodes not yet released. They will also have access to transcripts, and bibliographies for every episode. If you're interested in supporting the BFWWP through Patreon, check us out in the episode links, patreon.com backslash battles of the first world war podcast. Also, a shout out to Ted from the Canadian Expeditionary Force Research Group 1914 through 1919 page on the Facebook, who recently helped me locate a pile of records on a hometown casualty of World War I. Uh, thanks to Ted, I have an extraordinary amount of records, down to even the man's dental records. I'm blown away by how quickly Ted located and sent me these files, and I am deeply grateful. Thank you, sir. Another shout-out to listener Tim for his generous gift as well. Thank you so very much, sir. It is greatly appreciated. And finally, the BFWWP is now on Spotify. And we should be on Google Podcasts or Google Podcast Play, whichever one they're calling it these days, or both. One of those platforms, anyway, or perhaps both. But we are definitely on Spotify. Back to the front. For a quick recall, on the right of the American First Army's Meurs-Argonne Front was the Third Corps, commanded by Lieutenant General Robert Bullard. Third Corps held the line from east of Montfaucon to the western bank of the Meurs, and it consisted of these three divisions from left to right. The veteran 4th Ivy Division, the 80th Blue Ridge Division, and the 33rd Golden Cross Division. 
Third Corps' objectives for the start of the Meuse-Argonne Drive were the rapid capture of the Hagen-Stellung line that ran from Malancourt village through the Bois de Forge on to the bank of the Meuse, followed by the capture of the Fokerstellung running all the way from Montblancville over by the Argonne all the way east to Donnevaux. Behind the Fokker line was the Krimhildestellung, part of the dreaded Hindenburg line. And in Third Corps' sector, the first Krimhilde trench line ran from north of the Bois de Ogon, itself north of Nantiwa village, to Brieur-sur-Meuse on the riverbank. All three of these trench systems were to have been penetrated on the first day of the American onslaught. That, of course, did not happen. Of the three divisions, only the 33rd had met all its objectives. Their objectives met and seized doughboys of the 33rd established positions along the Meuse while maintaining liaison with the French 17th Corps across the river. The doughboys of the 80th and the 4th continued their attacks on the German line. The Germans, of course, did not stand by idly. Within a day of the American attack, they were already organizing artillery resources on the right bank of the Meuse. As reserve infantry divisions were marching down from the occupied areas towards the front, local German commanders were marshalling artillery assets to start blasting away at the American enemy. Whether the similarities with the 1916 Battle of Verdun went unnoticed or not, the Germans took their guns on the right bank of the Meuse and pointed them west. Then they started firing ceaselessly into the American front, bringing down a rain of deadly flanking fire that consisted of HE and gas. The 1st Austro-Hungarian Division, one of the units on the eastern side of the Meuse, was directed to take in other artillery units in order to support the German units west of the river with everything it had available. In a report to the 1st Austro-Hungarian, German higher command instructed them to, quote, put flanking fire in the area between Danevaux-Gercourt and in the Bois de Forges, and to fire unconditionally with everything they have. Conservation of ammunition is of no importance. End quote. It was the reverse of what the French had done to the Germans two and a half years earlier, and despite the successes of the French on the right bank of the river, the German guns had not yet been silenced. The Americans would now begin paying for this dearly. The second morning of the attack, that of the 27th, saw the 33rd Division holding firm along the Meuse. West of them, the 80th and 4th Divisions continued with their attacks. The 320th Infantry, belonging to the 80th Division, would be attacking the Bois de Danevaux that day. Captain Ashby Williams, commander of the 320th's 1st Battalion, took part in the action that day. I could see our troops working around the edge of the Bois de Setsarge, he wrote in his memoir just after the war's end, and I sent out scouts to the front and flanks to keep me informed of the situation. We remained in the best part of the day. I remember in the early afternoon not having received information of 
and advance ahead, I went forward myself with Captain Sabiston and my orderly to see what the situation was. I found the 2nd and 3rd Battalions, together with those of my troops who were with them, forming to make an attack out of the Bois de Satsarge, down through the valley and into the Bois de Danevaux beyond. We went to the east edge of the woods on the brow of the hill and watched the formation as it passed across the valley. It was beautiful. The formation was perfect. I cannot express the exhilaration I felt as I watched the straight, thin lines as they marched out of the woods and across that broad, open space. From what they had experienced the night before, I expected the Bosch machine guns to open any minute from the positions in the valley and from the edge of Danivaux Wood, but not a shot was fired. The advance having proceeded so smoothly, I decided that the Bosch had withdrawn from the Danivaux Wood and, in order to keep my troops in close touch with them, I sent my orderly back with a message directing my commanders to move toward the Bois de Satsarge and take position there. My orderly had not left me 15 minutes when our own artillery began to drop shells behind me and in front of my troops. At least 30 of these shells were dropped. I determined to return to my troops in order to prevent them from getting in the fire of our own artillery and made a detour to the right around the shell-swept area for that purpose. With Bois de Danevaux captured, the men of the 80th Division took no other offensive action that day. The next day, on the 28th and to their left, the doughboys of the 4th Ivy Division continued from their concerted push on Nantiwa with the green troops of the 79th Division to their own left. Once Nantiwa fell late in the morning, they kept attacking toward the Bois des Ogons and Bois de Fay on either side of the road to Cunel. From the front line at Hill 295 and Bois de Setsarge, the tired soldiers pushed off into the attack. There was no artillery support for them. The Germans were ready, and they chopped into the ranks of the Russian doughboys with merciless machine gun fire. The Germans also had gas shells dropping on the oncoming Americans, and this combination proved too much for the tired doughboys. Under withering fire, they turned around and ran back. Enemy fire chased them all the way back to the Americans' starting positions, and they hunkered down where they had begun the day. Also on the 28th, the 4th Division and 320th Infantry Regiment attacked and seized the Bois de la Côte de Mont. The Bois de la Côte de Mont lay directly north of the Bois de Danivaux, and its capture allowed the 80th Blue Ridge Division to shoulder itself against the 33rd Division along the western bank of the River Meuse. The Blue Ridge boys of the 80th were to be relieved by the 33rd Division's 65th Brigade, although this wouldn't happen for another two days. This was because the Germans, of course, did not let this situation stand without a response. Shells rained down unceasingly on the doughboys of these two divisions now as they held the line. The village of Danivaux and nearby woods were targeted for contamination by Yellow Cross gas by the 1st Austro-Hungarian Division. Yellow Cross gas, so-called because the Germans marked these shells with a yellow cross, meant mustard gas. 
nicknamed Ypres by the French, based on its first use by the Germans at Ypres in 1915, mustard gas is an alkylating chemical agent whose purpose is to liquefy human tissue. In contemporary times, it is labeled as a persistent blister agent, as it can stay in the ground for weeks after its dispersion, and it causes painful and horrific blisters as the sulfur mustard eats through skin and membranes if it has been inhaled. Soldiers who inhaled enough of it could only look forward to drowning in their own fluids as their lungs melted inside them over a period of weeks. Luckily, troops who donned their protective masks in time typically had a high survival rate. As they pounded Third Corps lines with gas and HE shells and launched counterattacks along the American line, the Germans also poured more men into the Meuse front. By the 29th, they had six more divisions in the line, with an additional five in reserve. Many of these divisions were catastrophically understrength, but they nevertheless signified the Imperial German Army's commitment to stymieing the American push through the region. Under the leadership of Max von Gallwitz, the German army was so far succeeding. On the morning of the 29th of September, the German third position, known as the Kriemhilderstellung, was still intact, and nowhere had it been pierced by Allied attacks. On the 4th Division's front, the 58th and 59th Infantry Regiments came out of reserve and took over the front line. Deployed left to right across the division's front, the 58th was to attack the Bois de Orgon on the left, while the 59th drove into the Bois de Brioule on the right. At Bois de Orgon, doughboys of the 58th ran into brutal machine gun and artillery fire. German planes, unimpeded by American aircraft, even swooped down to strafe any cocky-clad Americans they could locate. Their attack, a total failure. The surviving American troops pulled back to behind Hill 274 to regroup. The 59th Infantry rushed for the Bois de Brieux on the division's right front and soon found themselves mired in a grinding fight for the wood. Lieutenant Colonel Frederick Wise, a Marine Corps officer who had commanded the 5th Marines at Belleau Wood just three months earlier, had learned some very expensive lessons in that other godforsaken patch of forest, and he intended to put them to use. Three months before, I had stood on the edge of a ditch in front of the Bois de Bello and watched my Marine battalion go in. He was recorded saying in his memoir, A Marine tells it to you. It was all in plain sight then. Now, though the action was two miles ahead, I could see it as clearly as if I was there, for reports from division headquarters had told us just what was ahead of us. The Bois de Brieux was the Bois de Bello all over again, a dense forest, thick with undergrowth, heavily held by the Germans. Machine gun nests, cleverly camouflaged, snipers below and aloft. But the Bois de Bello had taught me what to do. The night before, I had sent a memorandum down the line. Each company commander was to comb his outfit for any country boys who had ever done any squirrel shooting. 
Those men were to follow about a hundred yards in the rear of the first wave of the attack. Just as though they were hunting squirrels, they were to walk into those woods, disregarding anything on the ground, their eyes fixed on the treetops. Their squirrels on this hunt were German snipers. We followed that plan whenever there were woods to take, clear through the Aragon. Reports came back to me that more than 50 German snipers were shot out of the treetops by the squirrel squad. Some of those German snipers were on platforms camouflaged with branches, supplied with food and water. Late that morning, reports came in that we had been very successful. The Bois de Brieux was wrenched away from the Germans in the afternoon. No further advance was made on that part of the 4th Division's line. After efforts by both Doughboys of the 79th and the 4th Divisions now, the Bois de Ogon still remained in German hands. Overnight, the Germans pounded away at the 3rd Corps' new frontline trace, slamming shell upon shell of HE and gas down on the exhausted Doughboys. When gas, or the fear of it, hit a section of the line, everyone would have to quickly don their masks. Just the very act of breathing through these masks made life more difficult, much less moving or fighting. Sleep was possible, but also difficult. And of course, if you were good with sleeping with a mask, there were the terrific sounds of the incoming bombardment to further discourage any rest. On the 30th of September, the 80th Division was relieved by the 33rd, and the Blue Ridge boys went into 3rd Corps Reserve. All the way on the American 1st Army's left, the 1st Corps' 35th Division needed immediate relief, and all three of 5th Corps' divisions had been severely battered in the past four days of fighting. General John J. Pershing's 72-hour timetable had been blown apart by the reality of combat against a battle-hardened foe. And now even Blackjack had to admit that offensive operations had to be halted for a rest and regrouping of forces. There was no avoiding it. Next episode, we'll check in on the battlefield, and then we'll take a look at political events across the globe and see how these might potentially affect the struggle for the Merzagarn region. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me at verdunpodcast at gmail.com or get at me on the Twitter at at WW1podcast. Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos, and check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.